2: or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: Back after a day of civic responsibility, uh, Denton. In this case, jury duty in the District of Columbia yesterday. I did not end up on a jury Uh, I could have ended up on a jury that would have been a two to three day civil case, Uh, but the witness that was going to be involved in the case after they had begun the process of selecting eight jurors out of the 24 in the room, uh, one of the witnesses was ill, was not going to be able to make the trial, so they uh, postponed the trial, and eventually we were let go. So it was a good day. Um, You know. Half a day down at uh, 500 Indiana Avenue, Northwest. Uh, And I think it means, I think it means, I could be wrong on this. I think it means two more years before I can get called again for jury duty. I'm pretty sure that's what it means. Um, I had deferred it once, but you're only allowed to defer it once in D.C. uh, without a doctor's note. And so I deferred it once and yesterday was the day. And I'm done. I did serve on a jury in Montgomery County about five or six years ago. Uh, I was on a criminal case, a two day case, attempted robbery, assault, and battery. That was an interesting experience. I can't believe I got called as a juror, um, but uh, it was an interesting case. I'll tell you the story one day. But um, good morning, everybody. Let me get this out of the way to start the show. Something that I would have addressed on yesterday's show because the conversation rage all weekend long, and even yesterday, uh, as I sat there with a lot of time to kill and reading a lot of different things yesterday in the jurors waiting room, um, was reading a lot of stuff on court storming in the wake of Wake Forest beating Duke. On Saturday, and fans storming the court. By the way, in that game, Denton knows this because Denton texted me, wait a minute, Wake Forest is favored over Duke? Uh, yes, they are favored over Duke. Get to the window on the Deacs. Uh, Wake Forest, as an unranked team Saturday, was a two-and-a-half point favorite over the eighth-ranked Blue Devils. And they won by four. Um, that was a good smell test special. I will tell you, the rest of Saturday did not go as well for me. Um, but that's beside the point. Court storming was the rage. Uh, and I'll address it now so we can move on. I'm over it. Like, it used to be fun to watch. And look, as a Maryland guy who witnessed up close and personal many a court storm, many a couch burning on Route 1, too, um, but many a court storm at Xfinity Center over the years, at Cole Fieldhouse back in the day. Uh, I always enjoyed it for the most part, show of passion, memorable, you know, uh, certainly we've heard a lot and read a lot about how, you know, some schools believe it's a bit alluring for not only athletes, but maybe just students in general, Um, like it's a, a marketing tool somehow for your school. But I don't know, it's gotten old, it's gotten tired because they just do it to do it now. The threshold for what constituted a legitimate court storm in the past has changed. You know, it used to be a rare occurrence saved for, you know, wins over number one ranked teams or for a championship or, you know, maybe a win over a big time rival with some sort of crazy ending. But now it's like, you know, Courts are getting stormed for a win over a ranked team. You know, I think it's run its course. Uh, it's, um, it's jumped the shark, if that's even an expression anymore. And the bottom line is, it's not safe. You know, it's not orderly. It's chaos. People get this injury has always been there. You know, back in the day, for, stor- uh, for field stormings, the goalposts used to get torn down. I mean, that posed a serious injury risk. Uh, I can remember goalposts being carried up and down Route One after Maryland beat North Carolina Halloween weekend in Boomer Sison's final game. Uh, but, um, you know, and by the way, baskets used to get torn down until they realized it was too expensive to keep replacing the baskets. And so they either immediately took them down, which they can power them down to the floor, or they put five, you know, yellow jacketed security people around the basket saying, "Uh uh-uh, not here. In the middle of the floor is fine, but not here. But that used to be a serious risk. Uh, But, look, you know, this whole thing has just gotten to me old. Um, It's not safe. It's never been safe. And it's time for it to cease and desist. You know, the leagues and the schools, it's really easy. The leagues and the schools should come together and shut it down. It's not that hard. The downside so outweighs the upside. If there's even an upside to this, you can't have Kyle Filipowski and Caitlin Clark getting banged up on their way off the floor. At the very least, at the very least, and it's it's amazing to me how... So many times a court storm's been so predictable and schools have seemingly been caught off guard. Um, But at the very least, the opposing players and coaches need full and abundance of security. You know, when Maryland had an issue with court storming, and it happened a lot in wins over Duke and Carolina in particular... Um, I, I could be wrong about this, but my memory is that there were a lot of complaints from Duke and Carolina about the Maryland security at Cole and then at Xfinity Center, and Maryland really upped the security. And I, it, I could be wrong about this, but there's something in the back of my mind that, that, that reminds me that, maybe, maybe inaccurately or maybe this is an exaggeration, but I think Coach K complimented Gary one year on Maryland keeping them safe after a court storm. I called the final Duke-Maryland game in College Park. It was 2013. Johnny missed a bunch of games that year. I did like six or seven games that year on radio, and I did that last Duke-Maryland game uh, in College Park, and Maryland won the game, and the floor got stormed, and I remember the Duke players having a ton of, of security around them as they walked right by, you know, Naki and Walt and me and everybody at the scores table on the way. It it was almost like security had set up like this path that nobody could get through. But look, this isn't hard. You know, it's time for zero tolerance. It's been too costly for the schools. I read this yesterday that the SEC over the last decade has fined schools $3.9 million for not stopping court in field stormings. They've had uh, a serious fine policy for schools that didn't stop this from happening. Um, there have been lawsuits over the years galore uh, with some of these court stormings and some of these field stormings. Whether or not they you know, had any ground to stand on, it was costly to defend them. It's just not worth the risk. You know, the answer is simple. You can't do this. If you do, you're in trouble. And then for those that are going to take that risk anyway, because there will be people that will take that risk because they're overserved or they're just willing to take that risk, you still, on top of having a zero-tolerance policy, have to provide enough security for the opposing teams, the players and coaches on the opposing teams. But it's simple. This is not allowed, period. You will get in trouble. You will get arrested. You'll get fined. You'll get suspended. If you're a student, you do it multiple times. You'll get booted. Do everything you can to create a deterrent. The focus of this conversation, by the way, has been all about college sports. It's funny how it really doesn't happen that much in professional sports, but it used to be a big issue in pro sports. If you ever want to see one of the all-time field stormings, go on YouTube and watch Chris Chambliss from the New York Yankees in the 1976 AL Championship Series decider, which was game five. It was a best of five against the Kansas City Royals. His walk-off homer in the bottom of the ninth. He barely gets past second base and then is basically fighting for his life to get to the dugout. You want to see some of the NFL games in the 70s, especially East Coast cities, You know whether it was Giants, Jets, Eagles, Skins, the Skins in particular, you look at some of those games from the 70s at RFK, uh, they had no security. I mean, and if it was security, it was Olay security. The 72 championship win over the Cowboys Fans storm the field after a field goal with two minutes to go to make the score 26 to 3. It took them, you know, probably 10 minutes to clear the field to play the final two minutes. There was a game in 75 in the regular season. This game is available on YouTube, or at least the fourth quarter in overtime is. Billy Kilmer sneaks it from the one in overtime to beat the Cowboys 30 to 24. I mean, before he's even gotten, you know, peeled off the pile. Fans are storming the field. This is a regular season game. Any Celtics championship at the Garden ended with a court storming. One of the all-time best was watching Larry Bird try to try to run off the floor in the 84-game-7 final against the Lakers. He's essentially punching and knocking people over to try to get to the locker room. It happened a lot of times in East Coast, arenas and stadiums more than on the West Coast. It was just a little a little bit more laid back out there. But you you can still picture, I can, maybe some of you I, I guarantee you some of you know what I'm talking about. In the 80s, when they put a stop to it, they would have cops on horses, you know, out at the end of big games, you know, the end of a championship or the end of a World Series or a, you know, an NFC championship game lining the field as a deterrent. And, and pro sports for the most part, you know, stopped it. I mean there's just there's huge liability if you're not providing enough security. But if you're one that feels like eliminating this from sports is upsetting you to the point where you can't enjoy it as much as you have in the past, then you're really not a fan of the sport, you know or the games. You can have a totally intimidating environment. In fact, the intimidation environment happens while the, it impacts the game itself and influences the you know and helps a home team. The storming after the game doesn't help at all. Although people were making the case that somehow it helps recruiting, I I don't know that one. that That one's beyond me. Anyway, let's move on. Um, I would completely shut the whole thing down at this point. Uh, it can't be that hard. You know, the children and the young adults who are primarily the people that do this, you can't let them run the roost here and put you at risk consistently. Um, So I got this from Ed. This was interesting to me. I just read it right before the show. He tweeted, have you seen these wild swing opinions on all of these quarterbacks one guy loves May, the next guy doesn't. Same with Williams and Daniels. How the hell is one to know? Uh, thank you, Ed. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Kevin Sheehan DC. Tweet me Kevin Sheehan DC. You know, I told Denton right when I read this to pull the sound of Merrill Hodge. Now, what was this from? Because several people sent this. This was some sort of podcast, right?
0: No, this was he was on the Junkies yesterday.
3: Oh, I'm sorry. Merrill Hodge was on The Junkies yesterday. So this is from The Junkies. Now what I saw was a video where he was having this conversation. So what it, what sound did you pull for me? Sorry.
0: This, this is Merrill Hodge on The Junkies uh discussing Drake May and why he That's that's away. what I want.
3: Him yeah. on Drake May. All right, let me hear it. Play it.
1: I, I wouldn't touch May. I wouldn't I wouldn't grab May. Ooh. I wouldn't draft him in the first round. And there's a bunch of things that bother me. He's extremely inconsistent as uh, his accuracy, his processing inconsistent. Um he's not extremely athletic. I think I find him more stiff. He's got a longer throwing motion which allows more hits in our league than he gets in college. And I'm just bothered by it. You know, in fact I just I knew we were gonna do this, so I just wanted to I hadn't watched mm-hmm. him for a couple weeks. So I one of my last games I looked at was the NC State, NC State game. And that may be one of the worst games I'd ever seen. I mean him play. <laughs> and but but it validated He's at the end of the season and ended, validated a couple things. He misses a lot of hots. The team misses hots. He sees hots and he doesn't throw hots. I just, so thats you'd have to get in the room and say, okay, why don't you throw this? To walk me through this. Okay, but that, that processing bothers me. In our league, man, you got to be dialed in. You got to be sharp on that. When you miss them in college, listen. there's a certain level of coaching that doesn't exist in college based on the time frame that they have. So coaching is going to matter. We go back to, we started with coaching and that is going to matter. And what they're going to get is going to matter. And that could be, they're going to get good coaching or they're not going to get so good coaching. And let's just assume they're going to get good coaching. So there can be a lot of things you can work through. But the one thing I've, I have not seen, two things that the, the always concern me is you can't fix, a guy can talk smart on the board, but then he can't process it on the field. And if I find out that guy's like that, I wouldn't touch him ever.
3: That was so. That was really interesting. The sound that I heard was was similar, very similar. But you know what he did there, Denton? He actually pointed out something that you and I have talked about when it when we've talked about Drake May. If you want to fall out of love with Drake May, watch the NC State tape because that was awful. Um, and I don't know that Jaden Daniels has one game that you would watch from either of the two years that he started in 22 or 23 where you would be fearful of what you were getting. That's interesting that he pulled that NC State because that was his worst game. Let me just say this. There may have been – I didn't see every Carolina game, but that game I remember specifically going, I don't know. Um, But back to the point that Ed makes – So Merrill Hodge, who, by the way, called C.J. Stroud over Bryce Young last year. He said C.J. Stroud was the only quarterback he felt was deserving of a first-round grade last year and talked specifically about his size and his ability to reset, replatform, and then make throws with a big-time arm. He was concerned that Bryce Young was too small and didn't have the arm strength to do it. I think Merrill Hodge, correct me if I'm wrong – I may be thinking about somebody else but I think Merrill Hodge with quarterbacks has gotten a lot right over the years. Am I right about that Denton? or am he's, I thinking about somebody else
0: uh he's definitely in recent years had some really good takes on QBs yeah
3: yeah uh, last year he nailed Stroud you know that was part of the video, video that I watched this morning is they went back and showed the uh, what he said a year ago about Stroud over Bryce Young but back to Ed's tweet. How the hell is one to know? You know, you have these wild swing opinions. Well, you know, it's not wild swing. It's just many varied opinions. Um, it's not like Hodge has an opinion one day, then swings to another. Orlovsky loves May, thinks May is the best quarterback in this draft. Um, the guy that I asked you to try to to get on the show that we've been unsuccessful trying to get on the show, this guy Kurt Bankert, who was a, you know, cup of coffee in the NFL quarterback i remember when he was the quarterback at uva for a brief period of time he's done a really good job as a recent in the nfl in a quarterback room um i'm forgetting where he was now i think he was with the packers actually briefly um which meant he would have been in the room with jordan love and with uh with Aaron Rodgers but I you know you'd like to hear guys that have just recently gotten out of the game in particular uh, talk about it Colt McCoy has some good stuff uh, out there on quarterbacks as well um but he doesn't he's not a fan of May he's a big fan of Daniels but you've got a lot of these different opinions here's the thing in following all this, this is what we get every year. It's just more, it's hitting home for us more because we're one of the teams in the mix here for one of these guys. And we don't need to know Ed. They need to know. Meaning the team, Adam Peters, Martin Mayhew, you know, Lance Newmark, all of these guys, they need to know. But even they don't really know. They knew, they know more than we do, but even they don't really know. So what to do? Well, we sit back and we, as fans, have opinions, you know, but more times than not, we're not going to hit on them. Uh, when it comes to the draft, it's a 35% hit rate is success for the people that do this for a living. I would just say this, though, when it comes to, the draft, and it comes to the construction of a roster. Every position on the football field sees essentially the same level, give or take a couple of percentage points, of hit and miss. You know, there's this idea, and we focus on all of the misses at quarterback. There are lots of misses at every other position as well. Lots of them. It's essentially the same rate at every position. You know, you're talking about if you can hit on somewhere around a third, that is a good success rate. So for me, it comes down to this. Quarterback, do you have one or not? If the answer is no, that's the swing that is most worth taking, regardless of the hit-miss percentage. The hit-miss percentage is the same virtually across the board. So if you don't have one, that's the most important position on the field. That's the most impactful position on the field. That's the position that impacts winning, specifically long-term winning, sustained winning, than any other position on the field. That's the swing you have to take. And you've got to be prepared to miss on it which is why you got to keep swinging because if it's one out of 3, you got to swing 3 times until you find the right one. Uh and not at the by the way, not at um you know, not not at the point in which you're reaching for a quarterback much higher. But when you have players and you've got a board and you have a need for quarterback and there's a quarterback that's essentially right there at the top of your board with two or three other players at other positions you take the quarterback and i would think that regardless of these you know differing opinions on all of these quarterbacks that these quarterbacks are going to be right there with the other players in the draft not named Marvin Harrison Jr. Right now, and things are on the verge of being updated at the Indy Combine this week. But as of now, really, the one player that everybody seems to agree on is an absolute hit. You know, there isn't a lot of wild, you know, differing opinions, varied opinions on Marvin Harrison Jr., he's the one that everybody feels most confident is going to be a stud wide receiver in the NFL. Everybody else, including linemen, including edge rushers, including, you know, obviously quarterbacks, there are a lot of different opinions on. I just think it's really simple for this team. You've got to draft quarterback at number two. The only way I wouldn't, you know, we've talked about this in the past, is if their opinions of what's left after whomever's taken number one is just not anywhere near The same level of player that they have, uh, you know, in terms of the rankings on other players. You don't want to overreach. You want to take the best player available, but when in doubt, that best player available, if, if one of them in the conversation is a quarterback and you don't have one, you take the quarterback. Speaking of quarterback, there were some interesting you know uh, reports from over the weekend. Peter King had something in his Monday morning quarterback column yesterday, which, by the way, was his last Monday morning quarterback column. Um, about Justin Fields that I thought was interesting. And then the reports that came out over the weekend about Sam Howell potentially pulling back a third-round pick or higher if he were traded. We'll get to those two stories next when we come back. Some guests on the show today, including Glenn Forello, the head coach at Paul VI in Northern Virginia, they beat Gonzaga last night in the WCAC championship game at Bender Arena at AU. I was there, watched the game. Some people, longtime high school basketball observers in this area, think that the team that won the WCAC last night, Paul VI, is the best team in the history of Washington, D.C. area basketball. I'll give you my thoughts coming up in a what do you got, and then we'll get to some of these quarterback stories. But Glenn Farello will be our guest at 1135 this morning. It's the Kevin Sheehan Show on the Team 980. TheTeam980.com. We're free and live on the Odyssey app. So last night, I went to AU to watch uh, Paul VI and Gonzaga battle it out for the WCAC championship. Uh, Paul VI is the number two team in the country. Gonzaga, the number eight team in the country. Um, Paul VI, I I have not seen a lot of high school basketball this year at all, Uh, but Many of you have said you've got to go watch PVI play. It may be the best team that's ever played in the D.C. area. Uh, they're probably the best team in the country or one of the top two or three teams in the country. Two of their, They had two losses um, during the course of the season, none of them against WCAC competition. They won every single conference game by double digits, including the championship game last night by 12, although the game was very competitive. Gonzaga played well um, and, and had that thing tied up at one point in the third quarter. Um, but the two games that PVI, Paul VI, lost during the course of the season, Denton, was to the number one team in the country, Columbus out of Miami, Cooper Flagg plays for that team. He's projected to be the number one pick in the 2025 draft. He's committed to Duke uh, for next year. And then they also lost to Montverde Prep, the Boozer twins are on that team, uh, and one of those Boozers, we the, the bigger the bigger Boozer, is the projected number one pick in the 2026 NBA draft. Those are the two losses, and they were close, competitive losses. Uh, but they had one of the great seasons in the history of what is the best basketball conference in America: high school boys basketball conference. The girls conference, the WCAC girls top to bottom, the best girls conference in the country. You'll get some arguments from people out of LA and Chicago and New York and Philadelphia, but most people and most recruiters and and college coaches will tell you that there's nothing that resembles the Catholic league here in DC top to bottom every year. Just to give you an idea, like DeMatha wasn't even that good this year in the conference. They were good, but not really good. Um, but Paul Sixth last night, first time I've seen them since they played in the championship game last year and lost to St. John's by two with the incredible story of their coach. Um, so people had been saying, Sheehan, you got to see him. This is the best team this city's ever had. Just top to bottom, the best. Just so you know, like somebody told me last night before the game started, in the game last night there were two five-stars, five four-stars, five four and six three-stars, all right, in terms of recruits. Paul sixth has two Duke commits. They've got a UConn commit, a Notre Dame commit, and a University of Rhode Island commit. That is five players committed. Those are all the seniors on the team. They're all going to, well, two to Duke, one to UConn, one to Notre Dame, one to Rhode, Rhode Island. Not bad. By the way, the kid, the center that's going to Duke didn't even play last night. I guess he's hurt. Uh, Darren Harris, who was the player of the year in the area, uh, is going to Duke with Cooper Flagg. It's the number one class in America that Duke's got going into next year. And Darren Harris is a 6'5", 6'6", shooting guard. Really good player. 21 points last night. Was the D.C. area player of the year. And he's been a pleasure to watch. Um, I know that. And I've seen him play before. Uh, Their point guard, Ben Hammond, is something else, man. He's going to Rhode Island. They got a good one. It's impossible to stay in front of him. Uh, So Gonzaga has some kids, too. I mean, their point guard, who is being recruited by everybody, he's a junior, uh, Derek Dixon, may have been – One of my top two or three players watching last night. Uh, Come on, Kevin Willard. you got to get Dixon. I know there's competition for him. Um, And uh, number five, Nick Lewis. My God, what a competitor uh, he is. They played really well. Their big dude, Gerdak, 6'10". He's also a junior, a potential Maryland guy. He was outstanding in the game. I actually thought Steve Turner did a great job, especially in the second half, because they were not the more talented team. I thought that last night, watching Paul Sixth, it is the quickest high school basketball team I have ever watched. The pace that the game was played at in the first half was unlike any of these games in the last few years. And every single position was quick and athletic. And it's not like they had a ton of size on the floor, except when they came in with their kid, um, Sundra, the kid that's going to Notre Dame, but he's more of a perimeter player at 6'10". But their quickness, you could not stay in front of them. Man-to-man, zone, doesn't matter. You could not keep the ball in front of you. And so I think in terms of just pure quickness, athleticism it's one of the best teams I've ever one of the best high school teams I've ever watched and their sophomore Jordan Smith for those of you that were there number 23 he's the number one sophomore in the country uh, I don't know what his vertical is Denton but it's what it's 40 inches plus but it's not just how high he gets up it's how explosive and how what a quick jumper he is he they could not keep him off the offensive glass. I don't know what kind of shooter he is, but he's an NBA player. Trust me if he and if he's a good shooter, you didn't need to see it last night because he just attacked, slashed, and then went to the glass and had, I don't know at least four or five. It seemed like offensive rebounds and putbacks. I mean, PVI is awesome. Now, old-timers will tell you that this area has had some of the great high school teams in the history of this nation, high school basketball-wise. Some of Morgan's teams at DeMatha, incredible. The team with Sidney Lowe um, in the backcourt with Derek Wittenberg, uh, back in the you know late seventies early eighties, both of those guys went on to NC State, won a national championship as their starting backcourt. Um, he's had many teams. The team that a lot of old, truly old timers, my father's group and their age group, will tell you that the Carroll teams of the late fifties to nineteen sixty, coached by Bob Dwyer is the greatest high school basketball team ever assembled. They lost one game in three years, and they were sick for the game. It was against a team out of Wisconsin, a highly ranked national team out of Wisconsin. They had beaten the the, the tar out of them, I think, the first time, and then lost to them the second time they played them the next year, or vice versa. I may have that um, in reverse, uh, but they had a bunch of players uh, ill. That team had Coach Thompson on it. Had Coach Thompson, Tom Hoover, George Leftwich, Um, And many people say that that's the most dominant high school basketball team of all time. Yes, from our city, that would be Carroll. I'd love to see Carroll come back and be a a really big sports power like they once were. That's my father's alma mater. Um, But um, PVI last night, my God. I don't, I mean... I think Gonzaga played really well, and they had a chance. They kept that game tight late third quarter, early fourth quarter. The place was packed; great crowd as always. Um, I just don't know how you defend that team. I mean, Steve tried a lot of different things. He was in a zone briefly, but you know they blew by that man-to-man. He played too, too close. Then he backed off. Still couldn't stop him from getting to the rim. And when they missed, you know, offensive rebounds but it was a high high level high school basketball game i said this after the game to somebody i bet you pvi would beat a lot of division 1 college teams and badly right now they would and and the person who is a, a coach in the area said oh my god they they'd beat you know a bunch of teams in our league um it's a an incredible team uh congratulations to paul the 6th undefeated in the WCAC they didn't have one game look that league you know to go through that league undefeated without a game decided by less than double digits is an amazing an amazing feat and they're loaded just loaded just the whole team is D1 guys i i mean i don't know what's on the bench that i didn't see play but I guarantee you every single player on that on that team is going to be a D1 player. You know, forever, Morgan Wooten at DeMatha had every single player, including team managers, get a full scholarship. That was an amazing run. A lot of college coaches would just take the last guy on the bench knowing that that player was good enough and fundamentally sound enough to play college basketball. It's look, it looks like that's what Paul the Sixth is. But man, Gonzaga was impressive too. Loved, absolutely loved Derek Dixon. Come on, Kevin Willard, you got to get some of these guys. And number five, Lewis. I mean, dude just competes. Um, as did their big guy too. Uh, I thought they played really well. Um, hell of a game. Glenn Forello, the head, the coach of Paul the Sixth, will be our guest at eleven thirty-five uh, this morning. We will have him on. The show. All right, uh, incredible high school basketball in this area. Most of you know that. For those of you that don't, it is as good. You combine Baltimore and Washington, and nothing comes close to it nationally. As a standalone, the DMV, it's top three in the country for high school basketball. We actually, in this area, have elite high school basketball basketball boys and girls and then we also have elite level high school and both boys and girls lacrosse you know you will see littered across college basketball and college lacrosse players from this area and by the way the football ain't bad either the WCAC football-wise, good councils put out. is put out. St. John's has put out. There are a lot, lot. Gonzaga. There are a lot of pros. By the way, including Caleb Williams in this year's draft. So football's not half bad either. I think it takes a backseat to what basketball's been over a long period of time. But the football talent in the WCAC and in the area in general is elite as well. Why can't we get some decent pro teams up in this town? Caps won last night. They're inching their way back into this thing, Denton. Uh, I did get a comment last night. I had a hat on that I was sent, and I'm forgetting who sent it to me. It's a Caps hat, red, white, and blue, really nice hat. Most importantly for me, it fits my head perfectly. It's hard for me to find hats that fit my head perfectly. I had that hat on at the game, and I had this dude come up to me and say, Sheehan, are you just trolling me with that hat? I'm a big Caps fan. I know you're not. I'm like, it fits. And I'm rooting for big Ovi to get back to the postseason. Maybe this will be the year that I'm rooting for the Caps more than any other year to see a legend get back to the postseason. they still got a long way to go. Denton will get to that in some of our news. All right, uh, there was news made by Peter King yesterday. And some news about Sam Howell from over the weekend. We'll get to both of those stories when we come back. Kevin Sheehan the Team 980, theteam980.com. We are also free and live on the Odyssey app.
0: Well, since you teed me up with the Caps, we might as well start there. They beat the Senators last night 6-3. to They've now won four out of their last five, and don't look now, Kevin. They're six points back of the wild card in the East. They have 63 points trailing Tampa Bay and the Lightning with 69, with a few more games, or a lot more games left to go uh, over the course of the regular season. So a lot of ground to be made up and could be made up by the Caps. Wizards in action tonight. Chris Ball will be back in the lineup for the Warriors. Wizards legend will be back in the lineup for the Warriors tonight at Cap 1 Arena. It's a Jordan Poole revenge game. He had 31 earlier this week. Wizards looking for their 10th win of the season. Tip off at 7. You can hear it right here on the Team 980. And that's what's trending.
2: You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever. Or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe.
3: So yesterday, um, I saw, as I was sitting in the jurors uh, you know, uh, lounge uh, downtown, um, I saw a lot of people tweeting some very nice things about Peter King, the longtime NFL reporter, columnist, Hall of Fame voter, um, because his, weekly column that monday morning quarterback column uh was to be his last he's retiring for whatever reason i thought he announced his retirement like a year or two ago but whatever um you know real quickly on peter king you know clearly when you have covered the league for 44 years and you've done it um in in a way in which people and and i'm telling you the compliments being paid by his contemporaries and people older and younger and people around the league, it had to make him feel good yesterday. Look, as a Skins fan, a lifelong Skins fan, um, I know, and I didn't mention this on my podcast yesterday, thank you, Paulie, thank you, Neil, thank you, everybody that tweeted me and said, how couldn't you have mentioned in talking about Peter King, that, you know, he was essentially one of the people responsible for keeping Art Monk out of the Hall of Fame for as long as Art Monk was out of the Hall of Fame. Art Monk should have been in the Hall of Fame much sooner. Um, but yeah, uh, the combination of Peter King's. Um, not feeling that Art Monk had had a Hall of Fame-worthy career, along with his position on the name specifically, always kind of rubbed me the wrong way, but I would not take anything away from him professionally as a writer and a reporter and a columnist. Anybody that has that kind of, of, of longevity in that business, you've had one hell of a career, and you've done a lot right. For me, in addition to the Monk thing, I just remember specifically he made a massive deal out of coming out publicly and saying he would no longer use the Redskins name in any form, whether it was as a broadcaster or as a writer. That was roughly 10 years or so ago. And I just felt at the time, you know what, you could have just stopped using the name like, you know, that that was a scattered around the league thing. You know, there was an occasional broadcaster that wouldn't use the team name. They would just refer to them as Washington, you know, first down Washington, touchdown Washington. Um, and rather than bringing attention to why they were doing it, they just did it. And so it often got overlooked. If you were really paying attention to it, you may have noticed, but it wasn't that big of a deal. And I, I just felt like after 30-plus years of – having no issue using the name that it was somewhat performative um, in the moment. Uh, That wasn't the word used back then. That would be the word used today. But it was a little bit too much of bringing attention to himself. And then he was on the station shortly after the Washington Post poll in 2016 that had 9 out of 10 Native Americans saying that the name was not offensive And he admitted, and I I can't remember, he was not on with me. He wasn't on with Cooley and Me or Tommy and Me. It would have been Cooley and Me at that point. It was sometime 2016. I I think it may have been Zabe that he was on with. Um, And, you know, basically Zabe asked him, "Are you know, given your... Uh, opposition to the name are you surprised at the results of the poll and he said I'm very surprised uh, but then he made a comment and I remember you know, the following day that I was on the air playing it and just saying he, he essentially said something to the effect that while the results of the poll were very surprising to him you don't make moral decisions on polling because polling will never favor the minority vote It was something like that. I'm paraphrasing. And I just remember saying the next day, but that poll was a poll of the minority. That poll only included Native Americans. There were no non-Natives polled. Now, we know since 2016 there have been a lot of people uh, that have picked apart that post-poll. You knew that would come, and some of it justifiably so, some of it perhaps you know, hyperbole, and they've held up other polls that have reflected, you know, a different percentage, whatever. The name's gone now. It's, it's, it's history. But I just remember thinking, you know, this is not a dumb guy. This is a guy that's paying attention. Like, I'm not saying that, you know, your, your moral decisions should be based solely on polling, and I understand the idea that polling sometimes doesn't favor the minorities that are polled because they're the minorities in the polling, except that this was a poll of only Native Americans, and it just—like, I think it was Zabe that pushed back, and he just didn't—it didn't register— Um, But look, as an NFL writer, Peter King's one of those guys that will be remembered uh, very fondly and is a good one. And I've read that Monday morning quarterback column by him over the years. He's always had some really interesting stories and tidbits in there. And he he had a lot of access. Players and coaches really respected him. You get better stuff typically when you've got an audience that you know likes you and is willing to open up. And I always felt he was able to do that. But there were a couple of things that he wrote in his final column that I wanted to point out. I thought they were interesting. He does this thing, for those of you that have read his column over the years, the 10 things that I think, the things that I think Um, and number seven on the things that I think was he wrote, I think I won't miss mock drafts, busy work, waste of time, blight on football planet. One mock draft the week before the, the week of the draft or close to it after listening to sources and people you trust in the game, fine and even good mock drafts in February laughable. You don't know anything mock drafts in October worse because you don't have any idea who's picking where, what a total waste of time! I laughed when I read that because I do think he's spot on, and I think that there are many in the NFL media that are asked to do these mock drafts that are just like, "Are you serious? It's it's June, or it's October, or it's you know February." Um, now the people that actually do them as part of their job, the Kuipers and the McShays of the world, I'm not talking about those people. But I do think the point here is that it's great. It's a great source of conversation, but the accuracy or the projections are not based on anything substantial except for that person's own evaluation. So it's really about the evaluation of the players that is more interesting rather than the placement of the players, and you know, even the evaluation of the players. As my the guy that tweeted me Ed, Ed which I read in the last, in the opening segment of the show. I mean, everybody's got a different opinion on all these players, so you just have to you know lean on the people that you've determined you can trust in their evaluation, um, and that ends up being the interesting um, part of it. Hey, Ben Standig's a multi-time mock draft champion, uh, so we will listen to Ben's uh, final mock draft in April. Um, then there was this from Peter King. All right, He wrote, I think I have five quick thoughts about the near future. And here was the one that I wanted to read. I suppose the Bears are going to trade the top pick. I know nothing, but that seems to be the way the wind is blowing. Would I say the Bears could keep Justin Fields, trade the first pick down once or twice, and build the kind of supporting cast a team needs to contend? Suppose GM Ryan Poles traded the top pick down one spot to Washington, which would take Caleb Williams, and got the second pick, a second round pick, and a 2025 first round pick in return. Then suppose Ryan Poles traded the second pick overall to Atlanta at eight and the Falcons picked picked one of the other quarterbacks. And in return, Chicago would have gotten a haul that would have included essentially nine picks in the first two rounds of the next two drafts, which he writes, instant infrastructure. Now he says, I don't know anything. It's just kind of a hunch that he has. But Peter Schrager at Fox reported something similar Sunday night, Monday morning, saying slow down on the notion that the Bears are picking Caleb Williams over Justin Fields, that you know Ryan Poles is on a fact-finding mission this particular week and moving forward, and that perhaps no decision's been made. So there seems to be some s- momentum back towards potentially the Bears – keeping fields and trading the pick. But I thought that one of the interesting things, and we can get back to this later on in the show, is what King suggested the compensation for moving up one spot would be. It would be next year's first and one of Washington's second round picks in this year's draft. Remember, Washington has their own, which is number 36 overall, and they have Chicago's second-round pick in the trade for Montez Sweat, which is number 40 overall. And I thought to myself, if Caleb Williams, in their mind's eye, is the only quarterback worth taking in the top three, and they believe that there's big separation between Caleb Williams and then Jaden Daniels and Drake May, that's not a lot to move up one spot. It certainly wouldn't be if Caleb Williams turned out to be the guy. Like, if they are convinced that Caleb Williams is the guy and Chicago's open to trading the pick, and they essentially have to give up a second and next year's first to move up one spot, I would not be opposed to them doing that at all. In fact, not that I would consider it to be inexpensive, but it wouldn't be historic as had been reported a few weeks ago in terms of the hall. I think ultimately, if Chicago is open to trading that pick, it's got it's, as I, I've mentioned before, it's not the Jimmy Johnson trade chart. You're not using that chart to determine it. You're using what the market says, and that will be determined based on how much demand there would be. I would imagine that there would be more than one team interested in moving up to number one if they made it available which means now you've got demand, and they can leverage that. But if he's right about next year's first, this year's second to move up one spot, I would, do, I would be totally in favor of them doing that if, if they had the quarterback that they were going to take at number one, presumably Caleb Williams, way higher on their board than Daniels, May, McCarthy, Penix, Knicks, Spencer Rattler, you know, Joe Milton, anybody else, to, to, Leah Tungavailo, anybody else you want to throw into the mix. I wouldn't be opposed to that. My feeling personally, Denton and I have talked a lot about this and we're kind of in agreement here. We both think that Jaden Daniels is probably, well, I do. Maybe Denton doesn't feel the same way about the distance between Daniels and May. I actually think Daniels is much closer to Williams than May is to Daniels. So to me, there are two guys that are worthy of number one or number two, which means I wouldn't trade up. I wouldn't give up compensation because I'd feel like at two, I'm going to get a guy that's super high on my board. But I have no idea what they think. We're going to learn a lot this week. By the way, today, this morning, Adam Peters is speaking in Indianapolis. Later on today, Dan Quinn is is speaking in Indianapolis. And as far as I know now, unless this has been updated, Denton, Daniels and Williams are not throwing at the Combine. They are there for the 15-minute meet and greets with the teams. And Drake May, has he made up his mind as to whether or not he's throwing? He will not be throwing. There you go. So the top three guys aren't going to do anything. I actually would love if those guys – showed some fearlessness and said, I'm a quarterback. This is the Indy Combine. You're here to see me throw. Yeah, you're going to get to see that on a pro day, but I'm not afraid. This is what I do. You can watch it. I guarantee you most of their agents would tell me that I am insane, and I understand that position. Like, why risk it when you're pretty much a lock to be a top three pick or a top five pick or whatever? Um, but, I don't know, there's a competitive – Part of this that I think would uh, probably please some of the NFL teams to see these guys throw. Um, Anyway, if they go one, two, and three in this draft, it'll be just the fourth time that it's happened in the modern NFL post merger era. Uh, It's only happened three times that quarterbacks have gone one, two, and three. Up next, Ben Brown is with Sumer Sports, the same group that Eric Eager is with. He's going to join us next. Kevin Sheehan, show the Team 980 and team 980com You could spend
2: the weekend doing the
3: same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the
2: all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details.
4: Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy,